If you would remain standing for our scripture reading this morning, turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. reading from the English Standard Version. And remember, this is Paul speaking. He is continuing the autobiography of his life, his testimony. So 2 verse 1 says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. As you know, we have been marching through the book of Galatians. We have finished the first chapter. We are now on chapter 2. And I was going to begin with a story this morning, but it seems like some of you may have already heard the news. Uh, This past weekend, our woes continued. Uh, Our second son, Oliver, who is two, um, uh, burned his arm on our grill. Uh, I had gone inside to get the barbecue sauce to put on the chicken, and uh, as Stephanie and I were in the kitchen talking, we heard a blood-curdling scream, and I ran outside, and Oliver was clutching his arm and screaming in pain. Uh, We asked Elliot what happened, and he said that uh, Oliver was backing up uh, away from a spider and bumped into our grill. 
Um, Oliver proceeded to cry for about the next half an hour uh, as he was um, just in an intense amount of pain. Um, So our woes have continued here. Uh, Thankfully, we did not have to go to the ER. Uh, That is the blessing of having a wife who is a physician assistant. So she was able to get us the medication, and he is doing a lot better. Um, But uh, I was actually going to share a different story about Oliver yesterday. But uh, um, yesterday, uh, uh, I was weed whacking in our yard, and... Um, God has blessed us with about two acres there in Jacksonville, and so a lot of weed whacking needs to be done. And so uh, I was in our front yard, and uh, Oliver and Maddie Grace uh, were going down our driveway, and they were approaching the street. And uh, I put down the weed whacker, and I called out to them. I said, now, Maddie Grace, Oliver, don't go play by the street. Uh, It's not a busy street, but it's more the principle. Um, You don't play in the street. Um, But uh, I had to tell Oliver three times not to go play in the street. Uh, The third time, he didn't listen. Um, I had to put down the weed whacker and start walking to him. I figured he would start running to me at that point. Well, he didn't. So um, at that point, me having to cross the entire yard to get him away from the street, uh, he knew what that meant, that he was in trouble. So I had to discipline him. But Stephanie and I, after we discipline our children, we we need to make sure that afterwards we hold them close. We pray with them and we tell them how much they are loved. And usually what we do is we we joke around with them and we say, how much does daddy love you? And uh, I said, daddy loves you that much. And they're like, no, not that much. I said, well, how much does daddy love you? And they put their arms out wide, and they say, this much. This is how much Daddy loves them. And it's true. That is how much I love them. My arms could not go wide enough to show how much I truly love them. And we do that because we want our children to know and to be secure in our love, that our love for them is not based on their performance. Whether or not they come when we tell them to come, whether or not they play in the street, Obviously, we want our children to obey us, and they are called to do that in the Bible. Um, But even if they don't, my love for them does not change. Now, as we go through Galatians, we're going to be talking about that security that we have in God's love, the love that he has for us, that the love that he has for us does not change. Uh, As you remember uh, from uh, the past couple of weeks, Paul has written Galatians so that he can defend his authority as an apostle and also defend the gospel itself. You see, these Judaizers had come into the Galatian church after Paul had been there, after he had planted this church, and they quickly uh, were trying to uh, alter the gospel that he had been preaching. Paul had been preaching Christ and faith in Jesus as the gospel. But these Judaizers began preaching a different gospel. It was a distorted gospel that in order to be a Christian, you also needed to be Jewish. You needed to follow the law that was set out in the Old Testament. That if you wanted to be a good Christian, you needed to participate in things like circumcision and the Ten Commandments that we had this morning. Jesus, for them, was only part of the equation. 
the other part was the law. But as we'll see this morning, uh, because the gospel gives all of us freedom, that we should live together in unity. So first of all, we're going to see that the gospel concerns freedom. So Paul continues his testimony here that we started looking at last week. But he skips ahead 14 years. A lot went on during that time. But he wants to talk about his meeting with John and Peter and James in Jerusalem, with the leaders of the church who were there. He went there because of what he describes as a revelation from God. He went there because he felt like he was called to. And so he goes. And he wants to, do, to uh, speak with these pillars so that he can make sure, as it says in verse 2, that he was not running or had run in vain. In a sense, what he was doing is going there so that he could be assured of what he was doing, that it wasn't pointless. And we'll get to that in a minute. And he brings Barnabas and he brings Titus with him. Now, Barnabas is a Jew who has converted to Christianity. Barnabas went with Paul on his first missionary journey. He is a very respected Christian. And one thing you need to know about him, because he is a Jew, he is circumcised. Titus, on the other hand, is a Greek convert. Because he is a Greek convert, uh, he did not follow Jewish practices. Therefore, he is uncircumcised. Paul brought him as a test case, as a living, breathing example of his gospel that is solely on faith in Christ and not on the law. He brought him to see what the apostles in Jerusalem would do with a man like Titus. So as he is meeting with these pillars there, the Judaizers infiltrate the ranks and they begin to spy, as Paul says, on the freedom that Paul is promoting in his gospel. So what is this freedom that Paul is describing here? Well, his freedom has to do with the definition of the gospel. That anything other than the gospel leads to slavery. As we have talked about in the last couple of weeks, the gospel is the message about what God has done for us in Christ. I have been quoting Tim Keller's definition of the gospel in his commentary on Galatians, and that is the message that we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. You see, if God's acceptance of us depended on our own actions, we don't have freedom. What we have instead is a constant fear. We would end up always asking ourselves these questions. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? What does God really think of me? Does God really love me? Does he accept me? If it was up to us, these questions would constantly be going in our mind. These are the questions that Stephanie and I don't want our children asking of us, of whether or not we love them. I don't want my children to believe that my love for them is based on what they do, because I feel like they will always be trying to prove themselves to me. 
I want them to always be secure in the fact that their daddy loves them. If our salvation is based on keeping the law, if God's acceptance of us is based on our performance, we will constantly feel the crushing weight of guilt and insecurity because it's impossible for us to keep the law. It is impossible for us on our own to please God. Instead, the gospel makes us free. Now, first and foremost, the gospel makes us free from our bondage to sin. Because our sin has been nailed to the cross. The blood of Jesus, as we sang about before, has washed it away. Our guilt has been removed. It has been consumed by Jesus. It is like the book Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress or the children's version of it, The Dangerous Journey. Uh, We are like Christian when we believe the gospel. The burden that we carry on our back as travelers is lifted. It falls away once we look at the cross. But this doesn't mean that our struggle with sin is over. In fact, our struggle with sin, unfortunately, remains. Uh, Paul himself struggled with sin in his life. In Romans 7, verses 19 and 20, this is how he describes it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Our struggle with sin isn't over, but as Paul says in Romans 8, verses 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel makes us free from the power of sin in our lives, but we still feel the effects of it. In our Christian freedom, we need to be reminded that even though we are free of our bondage to sin, we are not free from the law. Instead, the law is put in a different perspective, a different context. As he is preaching his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 21. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This can be confusing. It seems like Jesus is preaching what the Judaizers would say. That we need to keep the law. That the gospel is only part of it. That Jesus did some. And we need to do the rest. But what we need to realize is that Jesus did this on our behalf. Is that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. 
And now, instead of earning our salvation through the law, we observe the law as a way of life. We obey out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for God, to God for what he has done for us in Christ. For Oliver, it's obeying because he knows that he has my love, rather than obeying in order to get my love. Um, This morning, we listened to the Ten Commandments uh, before we confessed our sins. Uh, We did that because the law reveals sin in our lives. We realize that we cannot hold these standards, um, and it convicts us of our sin. But now, after Christ, we can and we also should read the Ten Commandments after we have been assured of our salvation. Because the Ten Commandments now become the way that we live. Um, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, and one of the the doctrinal standards for the Christian Reformed Church is the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's broken down into three categories, and uh, we always described it as sin, salvation, and service, or guilt, grace, and gratitude. It had different questions in each section. And when it got to the part on the Ten Commandments, it's in the section on gratitude. It's on the section of service, not in the section of sin, but in gratitude. Because of what has been done in Christ, this is how we live. Through faith in Christ, we are now free to follow the Ten Commandments. We don't do it to achieve our salvation. Instead, we obey because we already have salvation. We don't do it to gain God's acceptance. Instead, we live our lives this way because we already have acceptance through Christ. Christian freedom also means that we have hope. Hope is a beautiful thing. We live in the freedom of knowing that our future is secure. Not only our future, but the future of this world is secure. We live knowing that in the end we will exist forever in perfect freedom of the kingdom of God. We always have hope, no matter what life throws at us. The concept of freedom in Christ is a a topic that Paul talks about frequently in the book of Galatians. Uh, In a few weeks, we'll dive even deeper into what it means to have true Christian freedom. But because we all share this freedom that comes through the gospel... What we do have now is the opportunity to live in unity with one another because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Unity with the apostles was one of the main reasons why Paul went to Jerusalem. If you see here in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. He didn't go in order to see if his gospel actually checked out. He didn't go to see if what he was preaching was the right gospel. He knew that he was preaching the true gospel. And he was convinced that he and the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching the same thing. But what he was concerned about was whether or not the apostles there were living it in reality. He was going there to see if they actually practiced what they preached. They could talk the talk, but he was wondering if they actually walked the walk. And he brought Titus to them as a test case. So if those in Jerusalem believed the same gospel as as Paul, would they force Titus to obey the law and be circumcised? 
Tim Keller in his commentary says it this way. Uh, If the Jerusalem apostles had sided with or even merely tolerated those who were teaching against Paul, this would have split the church in two. Neither side would have accepted the other fully and would have questioned if the others were even saved. Paul's Gentile church would doubt the Jewish churches really have faith in Christ, and the Jewish churches would also doubt the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, you can't have a church where two factions are doubting whether or not the other is really saved. What kind of a church is that? So what would happen? What, have, what would have happened in the church, and what would have happened to the spread of the gospel if this was the case if the early church would have split early on between the Gentiles and between the Jews the spread of the gospel would have been greatly hindered well we need to raise the question for us today what happens in the church today when there is not a spirit of unity among brothers and sisters in Christ we see churches split all the time New denominations form, they break off of each other, and it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's for good reasons. But what does it lead to? How does it affect unity? What happens in a marriage when when a husband and a wife are no longer unified? What does it do for the strength of their marriage? What does it mean for their children? What about here at Trinity? Now, I'm new around here, uh, but one of my prayers is for unity here at Trinity because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And unity in a church is not always easy. Even in a church where many people are from the same ethnic background, the same economically, have the same political persuasions or otherwise, uh, and we have a church that is very spread out over the, all of uh, the Little Rock area, from Maumelle to Bald Knob and everywhere in between. Uh, we have many different views of what a church should be or what a church should do. We have different points of emphasis because we're different people, different ministries that we might want the church to engage in, different things that we would like to see our church involved in. But in all of our differences... The gospel is calling us to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to take the example of James and of Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, and of John, those who were the apostles in Jerusalem. Those who had seen Jesus, they had spent three years of their life with him. And as this new guy, Paul, came on the scene... They didn't cast him out or ostracize him as the new guy. They didn't give him the cold shoulder. They could have easily have said, who is this guy, Paul? Who does he think he is? He's not like us. He didn't spend all that time with us. We spent three years with Jesus. We had the Last Supper with him. We are the real apostles. He'll never be like us. Instead of saying things like that, what they did is that they extended the right hand of fellowship to him. Now, it's easy for this thinking uh, to rear its ugly head in the church. As new people come into our church, what are they going to experience? 
Will they experience the right hand of fellowship like the Jerusalem apostles gave to Paul? Or will they experience the cold shoulder? As brothers and sisters in Christ come into our fellowship, um, it is good and it is right for us to extend that right hand of fellowship. So Stephanie and I, in our previous church, we had the privilege and the honor of welcoming many people into the church. Uh, It's sometimes a little intimidating when, say, the senior pastor asks you out to lunch. But as an associate pastor, it was great. I was far less intimidating uh, than the senior pastor. And we had the opportunity when people came, we would invite them out to lunch afterwards um, and get to know them. And we had a home group that met at our house every other week. And we would invite them to our home group as well. And through that, uh, many people who visited Redeemer stayed at Redeemer. Uh, it's not necessarily because Stephanie and I are great hosts, because we're, we're that special, but it, we feel like it's because they felt welcome. We don't necessarily have the greatest gift of hospitality, but they did feel like they were a part of something, and that made them feel special. It made them feel welcome and loved. Sharing a meal with others or inviting people into your home creates unity with one another. So how's our hospitality? How do visitors feel when they come, whether they're believers or non-believers? How are we doing as a church in our unity? In order to engage in unity, there's a couple of things that we should be doing that this text brings to light. First of all, we should accept anyone and everyone who is a believer in Christ. We need to extend that right hand of fellowship. That's very important um, because when a person comes to us who is a believer, we have more in common with them than a person who drives the same car as us, who lives on the same street, who they send their kids to the same school. We have more in common with a believer who lives on the other side of the world than we do with someone who lives down the block who does not share the same faith with us. So as people come in, we need to engage in unity and accepting everyone and everyone who is a believer. On top of that, we need to recognize our different callings and promote them in our church. We're the body of Christ. Paul, in some of his other epistles, describes the church as the body of Christ. And as a body, we have different members, we have different parts, and we all play a vital role. One of my tasks uh, as an associate at my previous church was welcoming new members into the church, reading the questions, and praying for them. And afterwards, what I would say is that you're a part of us now, that we are incomplete without you. As members of the body of Christ, we are incomplete without the membership. When we aren't using and get our gifts and our talents together, it's like a body trying to function without one of its parts. And I can tell you from personal experience over the last couple of weeks, functioning without one of your body parts, a.k.a. your eye, is very frustrating. Um, It's not easy to do that. And the same is true here in our church. Unity means working together to use the different gifts that God has given us. 
And finally, and this is not an afterthought, even though it seems like it is at the end of our passage, when we are united together, we are united also in our calling to remember the poor. This is not something that Paul just tacks on at the end. It's very important for the unity of the church because when we remember the poor among us, it is a very vivid display of the gospel. Soon, uh, right before his death, Jesus, in one of his parables of the sheep and the goats, he says that whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. One of the ways that we show our faith in Christ is by caring for the less fortunate. James, in his epistle, said he describes pure and faultless religion as caring for those who are less fortunate, as caring for the orphans and the widows who are among us. So as we remember the poor, it means not just caring for the homeless, although that is a big part of it. It also means sharing resources among brothers and sisters in Christ allowing someone to borrow our car to go on a journey, uh, to borrow our truck if we need to move, bringing over food, helping out with laundry, uh, watching each other's children. There are so many ways that we can help care for each other. So in conclusion, the gospel gives us all freedom. We are freed from our sin We are freed from our guilt and our bondage to it. And as we all experience this freedom, it leads to a gospel unity that we have among believers. Because Christ has set us free, we can have a unity with one another that nothing in this world can match. Not only with each other, but with Christians literally around the world. So let us live in that freedom. Let us live in Christian unity because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. I didn't realize this, but I remember that this morning we have our fellowship dinner. This is a great opportunity for us to engage in unity with one another as we get to know each other in relationship. Because of the gospel, we all have freedom and have the opportunity to live together in unity. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that the message of the gospel is what you have done for us, that you have set us free from our bondage to sin and we can live together in unity with one another. Father, I pray that we would, as a church, live together in unity, in the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would show hospitality to each other and to others that you would bring into our fellowship. Father, please point out the ways that we, uh, that we do not, that uh, people may feel unwelcome. I pray that you would point out the ways that we could improve our witness of the gospel because we are simple people, Lord, and we need your help. Please guide us by your Holy Spirit and lead us. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen.